You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, uh, first I want to apologize for my allergies in advance. They've just been really bad today. Hopefully my sound guy can do something about that, but if not, that's, that's all me, okay? Today we're talking about a topic that sometimes really isn't talked a lot about in apologetic circles, but it's something that most every one of us has thought about, especially if we're pet owners. And uh, my wife and I do happen to be pet owners. We have an adorable cat named Shivo that's been with us for, I think, about six years or so. Absolutely pathetic entirely. And he's our pride and joy. And her parents have a dog who's getting up there in years, so they're preparing for that and such. And so many of us, if we've grown up with pets, and we've lost a pet to death, be it through an accident or natural causes or anything, but we often wonder, does God have a place for pets on the other side? Well, my guest has in fact written a book on that very topic. And I, when I requested get I was very pleased to see this is a very scholarly work. He interacts with great scholars like Richard Bauckham, who's been on the show before and who we're working to get back on to talk about his second edition of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, to N.T. Wright, and it's very thoroughly researched. So this is probably the most in-depth look I've seen at this topic. And my, my guest's name is Dan Story, and he wrote the book, Where Dogs Chase Cats in Heaven, People, Pets, and Wild Animals in the Afterlife. So who is he? He was born in Phoenix, Arizona, the youngest of three siblings. From birth to eighth grade, he lived in two states, six cities, and 12 houses, as you can remember. He and his wife were both 19 when they married, and we have two children and four grandchildren. His hobbies include hiking, wildlife photography, traveling, especially to national and state parks, and mountain biking. He has two great passions in his life. The first is ruined one of his earliest childhood memories. By the time his family lived in Seal Beach, California, and his father owned a mining claim in a remote section of Tonto National Forest in Central Asia, Arizona. <laughs> when he was four or five years old, he visited the mine with his parents, and he crashed that trip into the air wilderness as the beginning of a lifelong love for nature, wildlife, and all things wild, lonely, and beautiful. And Shemmer has never weakened or even departed during all the ensuing years. And when he became an adult, his love for nature became a focus of his life other than family and closest friends. In dominated recreational and riding activities throughout the 70s and early 80s. With his wife, kids, and friends, he camped, backpacked, hiked, and explored numerous wilderness areas throughout the western United States. He and his wife joined the Sierra Club, volunteered at a wildlife rescue center, and were active in various local 
environmental undertaking is including promoting California's border bill and establishing a large open space reserve in the city where we lived. His first published magazine article in 1974 was titled Helping Children Learn an Ecology Value, followed by the Wild Chaperor, Clocking the Cuckoo, about the Roadrunner, and a two-and-a-half-year series of Animal of a Month articles published in a Sierra Club newspaper. In short, nature was his life, and protecting and enjoying it was his passion. This changed dramatically after he became a Christian in 81. His passion soon changed from delight in nature or creation to worshipping the Creator. Although his enthusiasm and love for nature did not diminish, it was no longer a center of his life. In fact, his thesis for a master's degree in Christian apologetics was a 330-page book titled Environmental Stewardship, A Biblical Approach to Environmental Ethics. After graduating in 88, his focus and mind changed. Instead of defending the wilderness, he took up the case for Christ and began to write books and booklets and to teach classes and workshops on how to defend the Christian faith. Although he still offers the project workshops and classes, his ministry today focuses more on wildlife, environmental ethics, and other nature-related subjects. His most recent books, articles, and workshops include biblical environmental ethics and stewardships, ecological issues, wildlife, and other nature-related topics, all from a Christian perspective and often with an apologetic emphasis. More recently, his interest in writing has focused on animals and the afterlife, as reflected in his newest book, the one we're talking about today. So, um, Dan, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, thank you very much, Nick. It's my privilege to be here. Now, if my audience doesn't know much about you, other than what you just said in bio, tell us about how you got to be doing what you're doing. <laughs> well, boy, you gave a good summary. I can't add a whole lot to that. Um, I became an apologetics very shortly after I became a Christian. I, I was raised in a very moral home, but it wasn't specifically a Christian home. And well, when I became a Christian, I had a lot of questions that a lot of new Christians have. You know, how, how do we really know that God exists? And, and how can, can a loving God allow evil and suffering in the world and things like that? And of course, I was always very interested in the evolutionary controversy. Mm-hmm. So shortly after I became a Christian, I started reading C.S. Lewis's book and Josh McDowell, and I just fell in love with that. And it uh, triggered me, my interest in getting going back to school and uh, getting a degree in theology and then moving on to uh, Simon Greenleaf School of Law at that time um, offered apologetic master degrees and uh, and and uh, got a degree in Christian apologetics in 1988. And then after that, for about 20 years, I uh, focused mainly, as you said, I focused mainly on writing books and giving workshops and seminars and articles in, uh, in the area of apologetics. And uh, that continued on until I eventually kind of switched more into the creation area that uh, you described, mm-hmm. environmental ethics and wildlife and things of that nature. So that kind of summarizes um, how I got into this. Um, apologetics has been very influential in my early days as a Christian. Uh, what I mean by that, there's actually three ways that apologetics is so important in our culture. Uh, number one, it affirms the belief, belief of new believers. And that was very important to me because I needed to have um, intellectual confirmation that what my faith was was substantiated by external evidence. Now, that isn't necessary. Uh, the majority of people become Christians without a shred of interest in apologetics, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, um, it's very vital for people like me. Uh, also, I think apologetics is crucial uh, for the younger generation, for people that are entering into um, secular universities, they really need to have a background of apologetics because if they don't, mm-hmm. they're just going to be swallowed up by the secular environments in most of our universities today. Yeah. So apologetics is very important, and that's at that point as well. 
And then, of course, as a tool for evangelism, um, a lot of people like myself, um, before they become Christians, uh, they're skeptics. Uh, they're even atheists, of course. And, um, and they need to have uh, people stand up for our faith and explain to them why we have a reasonable faith, why it's not the blind leading the blind, and uh, encourage them to take that step of faith themselves and be able to answer their questions when they raise them. So apologetics was, was important to me. But growing up, especially after Earth Day in 1970, um, I really became interested, my wife and I, both in uh, environmental issues. And as you said, I joined the Sierra Club, which, by the way, the Sierra Club in the 1970s and early 80s is not the Sierra Club today. It was more in a conservation and things like that instead of a political agenda. But nevertheless, we joined the Sierra Club, was active in the Sierra Club, um, volunteered at Wildlife Rescue Center, my wife and I both, and uh, did other things relevant to that. And uh, so I've always had, ever since I was a kid, I've always had an interest in the outdoors and nature and in particular wildlife. Um, and that has never gone away. Even when I went into apologetics, I pretty much continued to um, have this, that same interest, uh, except my writing changed. And I was focusing mostly on Christian apologetics at that time and, and theological issues. Um, but in the last, oh, since about 1912, when I wrote a book in 1912, 2012, when I wrote a book on uh, Christian environmental ethics, at that point, I began to switch more and more in the direction that I'm writing now. And then the outflow of that was my interest in um, animals in the afterlife. I love animals. I love animals. I love wildlife. As you mentioned, I've written dozens of articles in this area. And when I had a beloved dog that died, um, I was really curious on whether I ever be reunited with him again. And that launched my investigation, which over a period of about two or three years, I actually spent not totally doing just that, but researching this topic. And the outcome is my book, Will Dogs Chase Cats in Heaven? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious. We've had him on before, uh, E. Calvin Beisner from the Cornwall yeah. Alliance for Stewardship of Creation. Mm-hmm. Have you ever done anything with him? Uh, you know, I haven't, but ironically, a few days ago, um, he's been reading my blog on God in the Wilderness, and um, he contacted me a few days ago and asked me if I might be interested in doing some writing for him. I'm, I'm a, a, a contributing writer for the mm-hmm. Christian Research Journal. Uh-huh. I'm sure some of your readers are familiar with that as well. And uh, he asked me if I'd be interested in uh, in a particular area of, of um, what I write about and environmental issues, if I'd be interested in doing that. And I am. I hadn't made a commitment yet. I'm investigating a little bit further. We need to talk a little bit more. But it's ironic you brought that up because it just happened this week. You know, my, my, own, wife, my own wife has said that if she wasn't a Christian because she has such a great love of nature as where well, she could see herself being a new ager, because they seem to have such a great care for nature. And I think she's rightfully said to me, it's a shame that many times it seems their love for nature can put us to shame because Christians should have a far greater love of nature. You're absolutely right there. And that's been something, the fact that was one of the motivations for writing my book on environmental ethics is, is I think that uh, most Christians, because of the party line that you hear so often about um, the conflict between creation and caring for animals and so forth. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of Christians are, are uninformed in that area. And um, I really appreciate the work that uh, Calvin is doing. And uh, hopefully my book has made a, a significant difference for some people as well. And I think that's a very important because most Christians are just not aware of the biblical teaching on environmental stewardship. And there's a number of other organizations that are in that kind of ministry. And I think it's wonderful that this is happening. I think probably reasons could be that somehow we seem to think sometimes that if we start loving the creation and such, we're, we're worshiping it and we're going to become environmentalist wacko. 
types. Right. And then right. second, some people have a sort of eschatology that makes them think, eh, God's going to go ahead and do away with this world anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Absolutely. I, in fact, uh, in a radio interview shortly after my, my book, uh, She Christian Be Environmentalist, came out, um, that issue came up on a well-known uh, international um, Christian radio station. And um, it just kind of illustrated exactly what you're saying. So many people think that. And, of course, that's a theological position. Um, but so many people think that, well, why care about the environment if God's just going to destroy it anyway? And uh, that's not not actually the proper interpretation. That's based on Second Peter 3, uh, verse 10, thereabouts. And um, if you read that carefully and do a proper exegesis on that, that's not at all what that passage is saying. Mm -hmm. um, what it means by destroyed by fire is actually means to restore, um, mm -hmm. just like the flood was destroyed, but the earth wasn't destroyed. Yeah. Um, just life on earth as, as it was prior to the flood, um, but it's still continuing on through the ark and, and through the animals that God preserved. So anyway, we're getting off to a tangent, yeah. I guess, here, but yeah. I think it's, uh, I'm glad that you're endorsing that kind of movement as well, or that type of interview as well. Yeah, and we'll be discussing that later on, I'm sure. And probably you also might be wanting to know that before we did our show, we had to go by and see my in-laws. And people who listen know by now that that's Mike and Debbie Lacona. And I was telling Mike about how you were going to be on my show. We were going to talk about pets in the afterlife and such, and about animal immortality. And he said, oh, Bill Craig believes in that. Well, you might want to know that you're in company with William Lane Craig there. Yeah, well, that is good to know. <laughs> Can't get better company than that. <laughs> now, let's get into your book here. Now, one thing you do say is that this question isn't explicitly answered in Scripture. And I'll say, going through the book, I think you make a very, very persuasive case. I mean, at this case, at this point, if you had to ask me if I thought so, if animals were being the after death, as I prefer to call it, I'd say yes, but you know, it's not a hill I'm ready to die on exactly either. Mm -hmm. Well, you're right. And um, at the very beginning of my book, I'm very careful to tell people there has to be a major speculation here. And that's uh, when I wrote my book, I laid it out very systematically. And it, you know, each chapter built on the previous chapter. And the very first chapter was, was the theological part of the book. Uh, where I describe essentially God's love for the animals that He created, His provision for them, His care for them. Um, that He, you know, God created millions and millions of species of animals, but only a very few of them, relatively speaking, are instrumental in terms of of, of humans and human human needs. And so, why did God create so many animals that wasn't really necessary? Well, of course, He created them because He loves them, and He cares for them, and He He, he finds joy in them. And so in this first chapter, basically a theological foundation that God has more in mind for animals than their short, uh, sojourn here on earth. And from that starting point, then I moved throughout the book systematically uh, developing my thesis um, that God is going to allow animals to join God's people in heaven and, um, and even be resurrected, actually. And I explain all of that very carefully um, throughout the book. And as you pointed out earlier, um, I also quote quite a few very well-known theologians, such as Martin Luther and uh, Peter Kreef and others that uh, endorse this, this same um, belief as well. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of pushback here, because some people might be thinking, especially if you've got any skeptical listeners, such as atheists mm -hmm. and such, and say, you know, if you're saying God created these animals because he loved them so much, well, then how come we're told that the majority of species that have ever lived are extinct? That that doesn't really sound like love. Well, 
we're kind of going off on a different tangent, of course, and I'm not exactly sure of the question you're posing. You, are you saying that just because God allowed animals to go extinct, um, he doesn't love them? Well, that would if you'd carry that to his logical conclusion, you'd say, why would he allow any animal to die today if he loves them? And, and my answer to that is very simple. They're going to die because that's, we live in a, in a world that is cursed. Animals, just like people, are going to die. And that has nothing to do with whether or not they're going to have an opportunity to, to uh, live in the afterlife. So even if animals died in extinction, if you, you take, and again, we're moving to some speculation here. I, we don't know how God's going to deal with extinct animals, uh, but I would assume if my thesis is correct, there's no reason, there's no really logical or biblical reason to assume that they will not have an opportunity to join the afterlife as animals are alive today. They're still God's creation. So I'm guessing you could probably make many little children very happy and tell them they could be doing something like riding on the back of a triceratops in the after that. <laughs> right. And the triceratops will not be carnivores. <laughs> mm. Now, I think if we're going to talk about the role of animals in the after death, we need to discuss what role do they have here, because a lot of people have this opinion that animals are created only for our benefit. Yeah, yeah the, 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 the value of animals is only instrumental in how they, they apply to humans. And it is true that God has allowed animals, you know, we have dominion in Genesis chapter 1, it's very clear, as well as Psalm 8, that we have dominion over the animals. And uh, they are under our management. That doesn't mean we're, we're free to do anything that we want to do with animals. Absolutely not. We're God's stewards. We're his caretakers. So we're, we're not free to abuse and use animals any way we choose to do it. Uh, but having said that, God has allowed us to have uh, domesticated animals for food, uh, for friendship, such as pets and so forth. And, um, but that only represents a very small fraction of the total amount of animals that he has created in the history of the earth. Uh, the many, many, many millions of species. In fact, it's estimated there's around 8 million animals, and of course, we're talking about very small animals, animals and plants yet to be identified by modern science. Mm -hmm. So that raises the question again, why did God create so many animals that were not important to human beings? In fact, some of them that are even be, after the, the, the curse have even become hostile and dangerous to human beings. Why did he do that? Well, he did that because he finds great joy in them. He, he loves them. He created them and provided environments and habitats so they might live uh, independent of his even much greater love that he has for human beings who created in his image. Animals we don't want to raise animals with little human beings. I'd be very careful not to do that yeah. because that would be very similar to what earth-based religions are teaching and so forth. And uh, that's just simply not biblical and it's not logical. Um, but, but again, having said that, we don't want to use that as an excuse to compromise uh, God's great love for animals and what I believe to be his desire that they will join his people in the afterlife. You know, I find it interesting you mentioned that they can be used for food because there are some Christians, I think, could kind of bark about it, especially, you know, if we're supposed to love animals, why is it that we would eat them and such? Yeah, well, and that's a personal opinion. That's certainly acceptable. They want to do that. Uh, they cannot justify that biblically. If you go to uh, right after the flood, God makes it very clear. That was the point, according to Scripture, when uh, he gave humans the permission uh, to eat animals. Uh, prior to that time, there's no place in Scripture that tells us that people were uh, eating were eating animals. Mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't laid out until right after the ark, um, you know, after the flood. And then God made that uh, covenant with animals as well as with people. 
And um, from that point on, we have the privilege of hunting. If you're a hunter, I'm personally not, but if you're a hunter, then to eat the animals that we, we hunt, uh, as well as the animals we raise for food. I know that Gary Habermas gave a talk once. I heard it years ago. You can hear it online. I can't remember what it is, unfortunately, but there did come up the discussion about animal immortality and such. And he mm-hmm. said some conversation, where what about that uh, that steak sandwich you just ate? And he said, well, I just helped helped it get there a little bit faster then. <laughs> yeah, he, he's quite a guy. I read a number yeah. of his books. Yeah, so why do you think God created animals beyond our service? Well, I think he created them... Um, well, part of them, of course, we just said he also created them to, to serve as a food item for people. Um, but again, and I emphasize it very strongly in the first chapter of the book, he created them because he enjoys them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Isaiah tells, and I can't tell you the passage right now, that God created the earth to be filled. And, um, of course, that same mandate is given to us in Genesis as well. And um, so he created animals, he created the earth, he created habitats for animals as well as for people. And he created them for his own joy and pleasure as well as a benefit for people. I mean, can you imagine living in a planet today where you go for a walk in the woods and there's no animals? There's no birds. They're just, you know, domesticated animals, sheep and horses and so forth. I mean, what makes the wilderness wild are animals. If you took away the animals from the wilderness, it'd be a city park. There wouldn't be any joy, really, to me at least, and I think most people would agree with this, Unless you didn't know, there's always a chance of observing some kind of an animal, maybe maybe just squirrels or birds or something like that. So uh, I think he not only created them for his own joy, but for our pleasure as well. I think it's a blessing for us, uh, which is another reason why we can we can have the hope uh, that God isn't going to be finished with animals um, on this earth once they die. You know, I think another parallel I can think to something like that is something like G.K. Chesterton said once about how thing how he said when. Skeptics can me ask about the problem of evil. I turn on them and I ask about the problem of pleasure. Uh, if this world is just a cosmic accident, wow, there are so many things that are just so good when they don't have to be. I mean, much of our world could function just fine if it was, say, like an old black and white TV show or movie. But we have we have so many colors here. Mm-hmm. Or right. we have to eat and drink to survive. Doesn't mean mm-hmm. food and drink had to taste good. And the species mm-hmm. had to reproduce. It didn't mean sex had to be very awesome. Mm-hmm. Now, it, we've been very blessed. We, when, when God created us in his image, um, he provided a wonderful world for us to enjoy. And, of course, as a Christian environmentalist, uh, to take care of as well. I, I think many of us could be surprised if we were to go straight through the Bible and say, um, are we going to pay attention when it talks about animals? Because we would be paying attention to a whole lot of the Bible, then, wouldn't we? Yeah, animals are, are mentioned frequently throughout the Bible. In fact, depending on your the interpretation of some Hebrew words, there's about 100 animals that are mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so and most people are familiar with a lot of them. But, uh, yeah, the, the animals are not isolated in the Bible. Jesus used, used animals in part, some of his parables, a sparrow and the raven, for example. Uh, most uh, of your listeners are probably familiar with um uh, the talking donkey, well, well that was a miracle, it's not necessarily mean that donkeys <laughs> were talking back then. But there's other examples in the Bible of, um, of, of the use of animals for various reasons. I, I'm not so sure about the talking donkey being a miracle. <laughs> I mean, you turn on C-SPAN, you can see several talking donkeys at this moment. 
Well, and there's Mr. Ed for people that are yeah. that are my age. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I, I wasn't around when it was out, but I do remember seeing episodes of Mr. Ed. I know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, and you know one of the more intriguing chapters in my book, and I saved this to the very last chapter. And I do have a chapter where I ask the question: Will we be able to? T- will animals talk with people in heaven? And uh, this is the most speculative part of, of the entire book. But I had a lot of fun with that. And I did it as, uh, I, didn't, I didn't make any kind of a dogmatic statement, um, but I did have fun with it. And I think the readers of the book will find that kind of entertaining as well. The uh, bottom line is we don't know for sure, but there is no reason that they wouldn't communicate with us some way. And I'm not talking about a human language. They don't, the animals don't have vocal cords and assuming they don't in the next life as well. But that doesn't necessar- necessarily mean that there isn't going to be some communication. Um, between humans and animals in the afterlife. It's going to be an entirely different and far better world than what we have today. And other theologians feel that way as well. As far back as um, uh, uh, Wesley, John Wesley, um, he talked about that in one of his books, or implied that in one of his writings, in one of his sermons, I should say. So, I'm sorry to say we have a, so it seems to be a little ritual that goes on at our house regularly when we're going to bed. Our cat sometime after we are done praying and everything. Sometimes in the middle, he'll jump up and interrupt us. He'll just jump up, come to us, whine a little bit, and then jump back down. And <laughs> I would say, I, I would love to know so much what is going on in his mind at that point. Wouldn't that be nice? I, I feel the same way. We've had a number of dogs over the years, and, we, and the dog we have now is a rescue dog. In fact, it actually came from Mexico and uh, was abused. Uh, apparently by a man because she was scared to death of me and every other man for a while. But now she's become the most lovable and smartest dog we've ever had. And I tell you, I just wish I knew what she was thinking. When she looks at me and looks at other things, I just can't help but wonder um, what they're thinking. And and as I also talk about in the book, um, studies in um, animal behavior, which has become really into uh, fruition um, in the last 40, 50 years, um, have found out that animals have many of the emotional and cognitive thinking abilities that humans have, but much less reduced, of course, not nearly yeah. on the level that we are. But, you know, they have uh, sympathy and they have grief and they can have love in their own way and uh, they can mourn. And I give numerous examples of that in the book, again, still laying the foundation of the whole premise of the book. And I think most people, just like I was, when I begin to investigate this, it's astonishing uh, what animal behaviors have learned about the thinking uh, capabilities of animals over the last 40 or 50 years. Yeah, I, I think it would be interesting, since you mentioned your dog being a rescue, to talk, <clears throat> for me to talk a little bit about when we lived in Charlotte. Now, I'd always been a cat lover. I grew up with cats. The pets we had, for the most part, were cats and such. And my wife, on the other hand, is a dog lover and couldn't stand mm-hmm. cats. But we're out looking for a new apartment one day when we were in short. We never bought an apartment there, but we go by this one place that looks pretty nice, and there is this stray abandoned cat fair. And Ari just fell in love with this cat immediately. Wow. And so that, that just so never happens. And when we pray that night, we pray about the cat. And we went there two or three times. Every time she wanted to see the cat, wanted to see the cat. <laughs> And then we went there one time, and he said, yeah, people are complaining about the cat coming to our door and such. We're going to be calling the pound tomorrow. And oh. we we didn't have much money, but, you know, I had to make a strong decision and say, 
this cat means so much to Owie. We, we can't let that happen. So he said, if you will catch him for us, we will take him. And oh, good for they you. did. And my yeah. parents and her parents were both concerned at first and thinking this was a bad idea, this was a bad idea. But now I think they come around because they've seen how good this has been for Owie to have a pet mm-hmm. around the house. Mm-hmm. And he's out there probably enjoy. If you check my wife's Facebook page, you can hardly go a day without her posting a picture of him there. <laughs> he's a little white cat, a, kind of a Turkish Angora mix. His name is Shiro. That's a Japanese name, and it means white in Japanese. And he he's the king of the house. So every time I come in and see him, I, first thing I do is just bow down and say, Your Majesty. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they're a lot of fun. We've, we've had a lot of cats over the years. In fact, my wife was raised um, with cats, more of a cat person. And then after we got married and had our first dog, she's kind of both now. But um, she's allergic to cats, so we don't have cats anymore. Um, but we do have, we've always had dogs for, gosh, 30 years or more. C.S. Lewis said at one point that he can't imagine someone not liking cats. But he said, but if anyone's really guilty of this, it's quite likely the cats themselves. They hardly like each other's company. <laughs> yeah, they don't get along as well as dogs generally do with each other. Mm. So uh, let's uh, let's talk some about these uh, investigations into the nature of animars. I mean, what are animars really like? Well, in terms of um, their their emotional and cognitive abilities, you're uh-huh. talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Animals, like I said, modern studies in animal behavior has demonstrated that animals have thoughts and feelings and emotions very similar to humans. And again, I give many examples of this in my book, but animals, have, they experience grief and sadness and loneliness and compassion and, well, empathy and joy and affection and love and things like that. And even uh, some researchers believe that at least a few animals are even self or Even C.S. Lewis made a comment on that in his book, uh, The Problem of Pain, where he dealt with um, animal suffering. And, um, and so, yeah, animals um, can experience the whole gamut of, of emotions that, that people do but again, not nearly as developed. We have to be careful here. They're not nearly as developed as humans, nor we have to remember that animals are not created in God's image. In other words, they, they have a soul, but animals don't have a spirit in the sense of that spiritual connectedness uh, that we have. Um, but that doesn't mean that animals do not have all, the, have all the characteristics that we have much less reduced. Now, Nick, here's why this is important. In humans, we associate our mind, the, the, the cognitive part of our, and our emotional part of our being, as the primary characteristic of our soul. And Jack J.P. Moreland wrote, has written about this himself. Now, if we can demonstrate that animals have the same characteristics that humans consider the primary attributes of their soul, there's no reason not to conclude that animals with minds also have souls. And I also give um, biblical, um, demonstrate that biblically as well. I'm doing it kind of philosophically now, mm. but I also give that same demonstration uh, that scripture demonstrates that animals have souls. And quite honestly, Nick, it's very rare to find a theologian that doesn't agree that animals have souls. Uh, the disagreement is whether their souls vanish or, or become extinct at death or whether they continue on and, and do an afterlife. Um, but the fact is that animals have all of the, 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 the mental characteristics that we have, much less reduced, that we have that are the primary quality of a soul for humans. So why wouldn't it be the primary quality of a soul for animals as well? Now, I yeah, do that's know, a question I answer in the book. I do know that some people are like, 
Hugh Ross, for instance, from Reasons to Believe, has said that it's only certain animals that have souls, what he calls nefesh from a Hebrew word, and those are animals that are capable of relating to humans, that he doesn't see soulish qualities in, say, insects, for instance. Yeah, that's and and actually C.S. Lewis has a very interesting take on that as well that's very similar to what you just described. He believed that that it's basically tame animals. Now, he acknowledged that, that wild animals... Ascension animals, animals that that can feel things and perceive things, um, but in particular tame animals, what he calls what we would call pets in domestic stock, um, are in Christ or in us as we are in Christ, and so they can enjoy an afterlife uh, just like humans, but they do so do so through us. Um, and and he said in terms of wild animals are concerned, um, they are in I, I guess I might say the human race um, in the same way though that 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 any expectation of afterlife for them would also have to do with humanity and our uh, redemption as well. And so he he says that animals that, that are not having any type of ascension awareness um, probably wouldn't enjoy the afterlife. And that's not bad. I mean, I understand that and I appreciate that, but there's a problem with that. That is pure human speculation. In other words, we're deciding for ourselves what animals God would choose to be in heaven, what animals he wouldn't choose to be in heaven. And J.P. Mortar made the observation that anything, any animal that has organic life, that would mean ants and spiders and so forth, any animal that have organic life has a soul. And so if even animals with organic life, you know, less complex animals, very primitive type of animal, I'm not saying that in an evolutionary mode, I'm saying that's a less complex animal. Um, if they have a soul, then again, there's no reason why we should deny them the possibility that they might also enjoy an afterlife as well. Now, I don't go into any great detail on that. I just have one section, one of my chapters acknowledging that. I bring up C.S. Lewis as well. But uh, I, I, we have to be careful because so much of our opinions on whether animals be in the in the afterlife has nothing to do with scripture. I give I, I take the three or four top scriptures that people have used to try to demonstrate that the Bible says that animals will not join in the afterlife. Every one of them are simply assumptions. They're not based on a, a proper exegesis of the scriptures they're talking about. They're pure speculation. And what I did what I did is to, is to be able to systematically build my case. Um, throughout the whole book. So I think it is a pretty compelling case that animals be in the afterlife. You know, I, I was thinking for a while, I could have given my wife some good news for her and said, Honey, it looks like spiders won't be in the after-death after all. <laughs> well, i got to remember, if animals do go in the afterlife, it's going to be new heaven and new earth, mm-hmm. and there's not going to be spiders that bite us, there's not going to be fleas that bite us, there's not going to be poisonous snakes, there's not going to be carnivorous lions. Uh, Isaiah 11 uh, makes it very, very clear uh, whatever plays out in the afterlife in terms of whatever animals are there, and we don't know for sure if 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 the lesser animals, the less complex animals, will be in heaven or not. But whatever animals are, they are no longer going to be vectors. They're no longer going to be dangerous to humans or to each other, because it's heaven. Yeah. Now, I think I do have to ask some clarification, Matt. If there was a possible heaven for animals, it's something I don't think you cover. Could there possibly be a hell for animals as well? Or would no. they be innocent? No, no. You got to remember that animals didn't fall. Right. Human, the human beings fell. Mm-hmm. Animals were cursed because of human fallenness. So animals don't need a savior uh, like we do. 
if animals make it to heaven, of course you can do it because of the grace and love of God through Jesus Christ. Mm. But that's not the same thing as saying that animals um, could go to hell because they're sinful. Animals are not sinful. They're not moral in that sense. And so if animals go to heaven at all, it's going to be all animals. There's not going to be an animal that's going to go to hell. There's no hell, as far as I could tell, anywhere from Scripture, even remotely. Is there any hint of that? Now, you were talking about... Although there might be a few animals people wish would go to, would go to hell. Yeah, my, 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 wife, my wife is saying spiders once again, I'm sure. <laughs> In case you yeah, didn't know, she, in case you didn't know, she doesn't really like spiders too much. Like. <laughs> You know, a lot of people don't. I've ran into that numerous times. My uh, my granddaughter's husband um, doesn't like spiders. He has a kind of a fear of them. Mm. So that's pretty common phobia. Yeah. Now, uh, you're talking about the uh, things that humans and animals seem to have in common. And some people could be saying, but are you saying, Ben, that humans are only different to animals by degree but not in kind? No we're, we're, no, we're different by degree, yes, but we're also different in kind. Mm-hmm. Only people were created in God's image. Only people have a spirit. Animals, even though the word spirit is used for animals, I explain in my book that you really have to think of spirit in terms of animals with soul. In other words, it's a soul spirit, not spirit and soul. But in humans, we're, in my, in my view, now some people don't agree with this, but I think most people agree that we're um, body, soul, and spirit. And the spirit is that part of our being that connects us with God. Animals mm-hmm. don't have that. Uh, in heaven, animals are still going to be just animals. They're, even if in resurrected bodies, they're still going to be just animals. And they're not going to be on the level of humans. And we, we want to be careful we don't elevate animals to that level because yeah. they, they're not that level and never will be that level. Um, but again, that has nothing to do with whether or not they're going to be in heaven. Yeah. Now, I, I know I have my own viewpoints on it, but what would you say is meant then by the image of God. What is it, by the image of God? Uh, yes. Being created in the image of God? Yes. Uh, well, I think it's the communicable attributes of God. Um, in other words, those things that we have a likeness of God, um, much inferior, of course, to God. We have a greater capacity to, to love, a greater capacity to reason than the animals, of course. And uh, we have a, a moral consciousness. Animals, animals seem to have a certain level of morality in the sense that they will care for each other and share their food with each other and so forth, especially animals are familiar with. Um, but nevertheless, they don't have a, a moral conscience like humans do. Mm-hmm. And so we have, and through being created in God's image, it's, obviously it's not a physical image, but because God is spirit, but be created in God's image, we have a likeness of God. We share some of those attributes, not those that, that identify him as deity, um, but we share those just like Christ when he walked this earth as a fully man and fully God. Um, we have the same characteristics in terms of the human side of Christ as he had, not his supernatural qualities, of course, um, but his human qualities. Mm-hmm. And that differentiates from animals, as I see it. Now, you were saying about how there were so many fascinating things you came across when you started studying animals and such. Can you give us some examples yeah, uh, one of the most fascinating, um, there's a book written by a one of the editors of, um, um, oh gosh, that metal block all of a sudden. He wrote, she wrote a book called uh, about animal friendships. Was and it in this maybe book, an editor of, of Nature Magazine or Scientific yeah, no, American? No, National Geographic, because he's okay. one of the editors of National Geographic. 
And uh, she wrote a book called, um, well, I can't remember the exact title, but it's about animal friendships. And she documents about 50 different cases of interspecies friendships. In other words, we're not just dog loves a dog, um, but a case of a turtle, for example. And, uh, oh, gosh, it's been a while since I read this book. I'm sorry I don't remember all the the examples she gives. But animals are a predator and prey uh, being friends and so forth. So she gives numerous examples of interspecies of friendships. And, of course, uh, when you get into the species themselves, um, you see numerous uh, kinds of animals um, in nature that um, are friendship with their own kind. Uh, even rats, uh, vampire bats, they've all shown characteristics where they will share food um, with, with those familiar uh, with them, and uh, they will protect other animals. And, of course, we know about service dogs protecting humans, um, but there's, there are numerous examples, and I give, I don't know how many I've given, probably 30 or 40 examples, at least 25 or 30 examples of my book um, of this type of relationship between animals and each other, both interspecies as well within the, the own species as well. And some of the experiments that I've done have just been fascinating. And I'm curious what you might say to someone who would say, where, see, this is just proof that humans are just evolved from the animals in such and that if that's the case, that means there's no Christianity at all, that morality, it's nothing special. It exists in the animal kingdom. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, we could, that'd be a whole different topic we could spend on. Yeah. But the bottom line is, if you believe scripture, we know that animals didn't, humans didn't evolve from animals. And if you're an old earther, you know that, that animals, uh, humans didn't evolve from animals. So right off the top, um, that's a non sequitur. It does not follow um, that because there's extinct animals and so forth that we evolve from animals. There's no biblical evidence for that. And over the last uh, few decades, as you know, um, being an apologist yourself, you know that the, the, the bulk of scientific evidence that has emerged in terms of genetics and astrophysics and so forth clearly demonstrate um, that creation is a fact and, uh, and Darwinian evolution is, is fraudulent. And so there's no evidence that at, at all, uh, the, any, any concrete evidence at all, that animals have evolved from, um, that people have evolved from animals. Uh, generally, yeah, my stance I take on it is I don't argue yes or no either way because I'm not a scientist, but I do say that if animals are more, I'm not sure how that would even argue against objective morality to say, oh, there's just even more creatures that follow the objective morality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now, yeah. I think also some of the things that you found about are cases of animals being self-aware. Is that right? Very few examples of that so far. Um, it's been determined by some researchers that um, dogs, for example, um, they have shown some character self-awareness. Self-awareness is basically means that they're aware of themselves as distinct um, from other animals. And the most classic experiment they use for that is is the mirror. And they put an animal, they put they put primates uh, and some monkeys in front of mirrors. The dolphins is another example of that. And they can see very clearly that they recognize um, themselves by doing different movements and so forth. They can see parts of their body that they they can't normally see, and uh, they can they just identify themselves um, as being distinct from the mirror. And which really the most fascinating part of that is is they realize, and this takes this takes abstract reasoning. They realize that they are not the person, the, the animal in the mirror. 
um, that they're distinct from that, and, and they demonstrate that by the gyrations and so forth they do to see parts of their body, see their teeth and, and things of that nature that uh, they wouldn't normally show any indication of being aware of uh, mm. without that mirror. So, so that's a fairly fascinating test. But again, there's just a limited amount of animals, at least so far, that they've identified. Mostly the primates and dolphins, which are very, very intelligent animals. And as I said, uh, in some instances, apparently dogs. I think I remember seeing some of my wife, because she's a big animal lover, as I've said, where elephants have the same thing happen. Yes, elephants too. Right, you're right. Mm-hmm. Elephants are fascinating. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. So I was just going to say they're some of the most fascinating animals in nature. And um, in terms of morality, animal morality, and again, we're not about morality like we have, but for example, they will stay with an animal that is sick until it dies. They will often come back and, uh, and see that animal again. If an animal is crippled, they, they will stay with them and help it along and wait for the crippled animal to catch up with them. And, you know, these are characteristics you see in a human, uh, but not necessarily you'd expect to see it in the animal kingdom. But again, there's examples of that in the elephants. You asked me earlier, and animal, elephants are another good example of that as well. I think they are. Also- fact- <laughs> Go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, bouncing back to your question earlier, that it reminded me of, a, of an example of interspecies friendships. Uh, not necessarily friendships, but interspecies concern. There is a case in Africa, a documented case, where, um, in fact, observed by police, where these elephants uh, had learned to pick up a, a uh, tree or something heavy enough to drop on electric fences, which they use in Africa sometimes to try to keep them out of their, their, their um, agricultural fields. And in one case, uh, they even rescued a, an enclosure full of antelopes so the antelopes could get out. And they asked you to rescue them. They, now, this is interspecies concern where they rescued the anim- these animals, these antelopes, so they can get free. And there's even a case with a lion uh, again, documented case where this lion um, protected this child until the people found her, and then they went off and left her alone, didn't bother at all, just mm-hmm. did watch over her. Mm-hmm. So, again, these are just amazing examples of the cognitive and emotional abilities that animals can have. I, I mean, my wife showed me a story about a man who actually raised a lion from a baby, mm-hmm. and then the mm-hmm. lion was released back into the wild again, and a year later... The man went out to see this lion again, and the lion actually recognized him, ran up to him, kind of gave him a sort of lion hug, brought him back to introduce <laughs> him to the family and such. That's amazing. Yeah, there's a lot more to add. The bottom line is, what we're sharing, there's a lot more to animals than we think there is, uh, than most people think there is. But there's just a lot of fascinating information out there, and I and I uh, reference several books. Readers who read my book, Richard, they can pursue that even further. And whenever Shark Week comes around, my wife is glued to the set, and because she <laughs> loves sharks I tell so you, much. Really? Yeah, our first date, in fact, was at the Georgia Aquarium, and yes, yeah, she spent a considerable amount of time telling me about sharks, and she was telling me about this story <laughs> about how these sharks were put in sort of this enclosure, and one of them would be there first, and he realized that if he kept hit, hitting this lever or something, he'd get food. Mm-hmm. And so what he did was he started, whenever a new shark was brought in, he would actually show the new shark how to get food, and the shark was Isn't naive at first, but then after a while, mm-hmm. they'd start doing the same thing. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's a great story. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, all this stuff here, I mean, it's not just 
abstract thing about, oh, this is cool stuff, look what animals can do, but it's actually very central to your case, isn't it? Right, right. Yes, very central, because Hmm. before I could establish the fact that there's a possibility of animals in the afterlife, I have to establish the fact that animals have souls. Although the Bible makes it very clear that animals have souls, I still felt I need to give reasons why we know scientifically that animals have souls, same reason we can know scientifically that humans have souls. And I spend quite a bit of time establishing that, and once I've done that, then I get into the biblical um, explanation of, of why animals have soul, how, why we know animals have soul, because the Bible teaches that. Yeah, you, you do have the next section on your book saying, well, okay, I suppose we are grieving that animals have souls. Does that mean that they are necessarily immortal souls capable of surviving into the next life? Right, right, and, and that's where the that's where the rub, that's where the controversy has lies. And um, and the fact it, in, in times past, um, Thomas Aquinas, for example, who believed that animals have souls, again, that's what the Bible teaches, um, the Catholic theologian, but Thomas Aquinas rejected the idea that animals would, would survive in the afterlife. He thought the, the, the soul just became extinct. Um, and this, again, this is one of the reasons I very carefully, systematically build up my case for animal immortality, uh, beginning with God's love, of course, but then moving into um, their cognitive skills and eventually into the fact that they're souls. Because if they have all the similar characteristics that we consider to be necessary for humans to have souls, if animals have those same essential characteristics, even if much less reduced, there is no biblical, there's no logical, there's no scientific reason why we cannot assume that they also have immortal souls. And again, I'm saying this in a couple of sentences, but I spent a lot of time developing this thesis. Yeah, you know, saying that there's no biblical or scientific and such reason why they couldn't have, why they couldn't be immortal, it doesn't mean at the same time there's any biblical reason yet why we should think they're immortal, is there? I think there is, and, and that's the premise of my book, okay. is that we have not only biblical but scientific reason okay. um, for why we, we could think that animals um, do have immortal souls. Now, again, it, you know, as I said at the very beginning, we have to be recognized, and I'm the first to admit this, there has to be a major speculation here. And one of the reasons I think my book is different from other books that have dealt with this issue, it's not, about, it's not fluff. In other words, I really developed this very systematically. I have a background in apologetics in order right. to do research and reasoning, and I'm very, very careful uh, not to overstate my case, right. uh, but to but to provide a very compelling reason why we can believe that animals will 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 join us in the afterlife, God's people in the afterlife. Yeah, and I, I do want to state that that, like I said at the start, I was very surprised when I was going over Brooks just how thorough the case was and how exegetical it was in we'll get into this a little bit when you get into your view of heaven as well but I mean you're engaging with Bauckham and Wright and Kraft and serious thinkers in the field regularly and I found it very refreshing well thank you now I tried to I tried to be very very thorough as I could let's go to uh, some of these uh, biblical passages here. I mean, one of the first ones you have is Psalm 49, 10 through 20, where it says, like, for instance, a man who has riches without understanding is like the beast that perishes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you can see these kinds of passages where beasts are contrasted from mankind and such. I mean, it doesn't that damage your case? 
Well, of course they're contrasted because they're not they're not creating God's image, and and we are the stewards over the animal kingdom um, for God. And uh, but God, you know, Psalm uh, fifty ten, I think it is, tells very clearly that God owns the animals. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the wild animals and so forth. So God is the owner of the animals, and our responsibility is be good stewards of them. And that would mean um, giving them habitats and healthy habitats to live in, and free roaming areas to to survive in, and so forth. Um, but none of that really has to do, and in that case, for example, is really if you read if you read these passages in context, uh, you'll see they're really not talking about the immortality of animals at all. Uh, the examples of the I think there's three, there could be four examples that I give in the book that are commonly used to to state that we'll see this teaches that animals are going to die a death. They're, they're not. They're all assumptions, Nick. And this is something because they're people read it. You know that they proof text. They take what they want out of that, and then they make their own interpretation in. They do eisegesis. They read back into Scripture what they think that says, rather than taking the Scripture based face value. In that particular passage, like the other ones that I mentioned, um, have nothing to do with the immortality of animals at all. Yeah, I, animals I, are frequently used in the Bible as illustrations. Yeah, I, I was pretty amused when I saw, for instance, Matthew twenty five thirty one through forty six for sheep and goats. Because even if right. I was a wouldn't be a skeptic of this position, and I usually try to approach a book making an argument as if I am a skeptic. I could still uh-huh. look at that and say, I can tell that that passage is not anything, it's not about animals whatsoever, period. It's, it's one of those passages right. that's clearly an analogy. Right. And, and even if was a literal, then at least the goats would go to heaven. Even I yeah. mean, the sheep would go to heaven even if the goats didn't. Yeah. So it, it just defeats itself. It, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work. Of course, the greatest one, one you should spend some time explaining, though, is Ecclesiastes 3, 19-21. For the fate of the sons right. of men and of the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, rock, spirit. And there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of a beast descends downward to the earth? Right. And um, that is the number one passage the skeptics use to try to demonstrate that animals perish at physical death, humans don't. But again, what is he talking about? He's talking about physical death. And then he doesn't make a statement, and this is crucial to understand that, that passage properly. Um, Solomon isn't making a statement. Rather, what Solomon doing, he's asking a question. Who knows that the spirit of animals are going to descend or go, or go to heaven? Um, and it's the same question that, that people ask all the time today. Who knows? I mean, and, and so Solomon, the wisest man supposedly that ever lived, is asking the same question people ask today. So what the statement is saying is not making a, uh, it's not making a, a dogmatic or a doctrinal statement about the fate of animals. Animals is simply making is asking a question. Who knows if if the spirit of animals go down or they or they go to heaven? Now, skeptics try to justify that by going all the way down to or back to um, Ecclesiastic 12, and they take another passage there, totally out of context. Has absolutely nothing to do with the five chapters previous to that, the one we're just talking about. But they try to justify their position from that. But it's, but in context, once again, if people read these things in context. It's not talking about animals at all. It has nothing to do with the immortality of animals at all. So it's just, as I said earlier, all of these arguments are really assumptions that people read into to support their argument. In other words, they come to, they come to Scripture with a preset notion that animals will not survive to go into the afterlife, and they, they find these few passages that seem to imply that might be the case, take them out of context, misinterpret them, and read more into it than there really is. 
And, and there's I, not very many passages that are like that, actually, very few yeah. that they even could use. And I would say, in fact, also that one of the great problems is Ecclesiastes is really one of the most difficult books to interpret yes. and understand. So if I was yes, going somewhere for clear doctrine, Ecclesiastes is not the place I would go to. Right. No, you're right. Absolutely right. And interesting enough, the word um, for spirit there in the Hebrew is the same word that applies to people. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the spirit of animals, the same word that applies to people. Now, again, as I said earlier, I'm, I have to, I try to be careful here. I'm not saying animals have spirits because I'm a tripartite. I believe that they're body, soul, and spirit. Um, I think in the case of animals, they're bipartite. That in other words, they have a soul, spirit as one entity, and mm-hmm. then they have a physical body, and they don't have the spirit in the sense that we do. Yeah. So I would change that if I was going to write it myself. I would use soul instead of spirit, but uh, that's how <laughs> the Hebrew is. Now, when we get to the doctrine of heaven, I was also, again, very pleased at this point that you didn't go the route that's usually considered more traditional, as in the route that most church people would think of, that, you know, this world's going to go away and we're going to be off in some ethereal, cloudy existence right. from now on mm-hmm. and such. Uh, mm-hmm. Would you care to explain your position well, on heaven a little bit? Yeah, it's a very common assumption among people, and including myself years ago, before I really started researching this, um, that heaven was going to be some otherworldly place. And this earth is going to be destroyed, and um, and God's people is going to be translated to a, to another dimension um, or to another planet, or God's going to create a different planet and so forth. But when you do a careful reading, both the Old and New Testament, both, and especially Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, it's very, very clear that what's going to happen is, is heaven, which today is domain of, of God and of Christ and, and, and uh, humans that, that have already died in, in, in spirit form uh, with the Lord. Um, at the end of this time, when Jesus returns to reestablish his eternal kingdom, at that time, heaven is going to do essentially merge with earth. And it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And both Revelation and Isaiah and other passages refer um, to the eschatological future heaven as a new heaven and the new earth. So there's going to be a merging of the heaven of heaven with earth. The earth is going to be redeemed and, and uh, restored uh, back even better than the Garden of Eden. And um, and God is going to dwell with His people. And I give a, a, a numerous passage, a number of passages in the Scripture that makes it very very plain that that's the case. And, um, of course, other theologians have written about the same thing as well. And so, yeah, and and that's been, I've had people tell me that that they really enjoy hearing that. They didn't know that. Uh, It's encouraged them to think that uh, this earth is going to be not destroyed. This earth is going to be redeemed. It's going to be transformed. It's going to be healed. And all the evil is going to be gone. And we're going to live in a paradise here on earth, similar but even better than the Garden of Eden, because God's going to be dwelling with us as well. And we'll see Jesus face to face. I think this would be a good time for us to also consider the whole Second Peter three passage, because this, as you point out, it's the only one that, if we took it a literal face value, you would say the world is going to be destroyed. But what exactly is going on in Second Peter three? Because I mean, we don't want to say the text is wrong or anything like that. But what the, what no. is the text really saying? Well, if you dip, if you read different versions of the Bible, you're going to have different words that are used. Um, but basically, the, 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 where the problem is, is the use of fire and, and heat. 
And again, there's different, different translations are going to use it a little bit differently. But if you read throughout Bible, the word fire is, is universally just about, as, as far as I can tell, is stands for judgment. In other words, it's not talking literally that the world is going to burn up. Mm-hmm. Um, it stands for judgment. And you go throughout the Bible, you're going to see that that's the case. Um, you know, fire and brimstone, as we talk about today. And so what Peter is saying there, according to the interpretations that I think is most uh, closest to the original text, uh, what Peter is saying there, and actually the word, if I remember correctly, is discovered, um, that the, the the world is going to be discovered. In other words, it's going yes, it's going to perish, it's going to change, it's going to be transformed, but it's not going to be literally destroyed by fire. And I don't know another passage in all of the Bible that tells us the world is going to be destroyed by fire. That's the only one. Now, if you go back in that very same chapter in Peter, and you go up where we refers to Noah's Ark, he used the word destroyed there too. Mm. But we know the earth was not annihilated. Uh, but, you know, God survived, uh, saved Noah and his family and at least two of every animal on the ark to repopulate the earth. So harmonizing those two texts together, if Peter means the same thing in uh, in chapter 3 as he meant earlier in chapter 3, then the earth is not going to be annihilated, literally destroyed. It's going to be redeemed. It's going to be judged, as fire stands for, and it's going to be redeemed and transformed. And, and again, heaven is going to merge with a redeemed and restored new earth, and um, that'll be our eternal home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's been some good research done on that. And uh, in fact, I quote um, what I think is probably one of the best um, exegesis of that particular passage in, in my book. Don't ask me. <laughs> I'd have to look to see who it is. I can't remember off the cuff. But anyway, it's in there. I'd like to remind everyone at this point that uh, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest this week is Dan Story. We're talking about his book, Where Dogs Chase Cats in Heaven, People, Pets, and Wild Animals in the Afterlife. But if you're listening next week, uh, Dan mentioned Thomas Aquinas earlier, and he, we're going to be talking about him next week. I'm going to have Gerard Verschulen. I've probably butchered his name, but... You can look him up. He's going to be on my show. We're talking about Aquinas and modern science. What does a 13th century monk have to tell us about modern science today? But for now, let's get back to Dan's story talking about animals in the afterlife. Now, I, I think also a lot of people just don't realize that if they're going to say that the whole world is going to be destroyed, that really goes strongly against a Jewish mindset. In fact, I'd say... Dare I say, it's far more Gnostic to think that this world is evil because, like, for instance, it's material or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that God, when he, on the seventh day, he looked back at all he created and said it's very good. Mm-hmm. So we know that God didn't create the world as evil. But we do know because of the fall of the human race and starting with Adam and Eve, we know that, the, that this earth has become cursed. 
and consequently, Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, and uh, nature became cursed, and we have predators, and we have diseases, and we have hurricanes and tsunamis and so forth. Uh, but, but that doesn't mean that the earth itself is evil. God created a good earth. And whatever problems we have on Earth today, physical problems with with, with uh, natural disasters and so forth, uh, ultimately can be traced back to the humanity, and of course Satan and his involvement in all of that. So I would argue um, that I don't think it's a fair assumption to say that the Earth itself is evil. And again, that would be another reason why God wouldn't necessarily annihilate the Earth and create a brand new Earth from scratch, um, but rather He would redeem this Earth. In uh, Romans chapter 10. I mean, Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 19 to 23 make it very, very clear that that's exactly what's going to happen. And, and Paul teaches us that all animals, or he says all creation, but of course that would include animals, are waiting for the redemption of, of the human race. Mm-hmm. And um, because animal redemption is going to be part and parcel of human redemption. Animals didn't fall. Animals are cursed. But they're going to be redeemed alongside um, people at, at, in the end of this time, the end of this age. Mm-hmm. So when I mean, I, I think just people miss what seems so strikingly obvious once you realize it. For <clears throat> instance, when you get to Revelation twenty-one, mankind doesn't go up to heaven; heaven mm-hmm. comes down to us. So it's kind of like it's almost as if God hits the reset button on Earth, but then He makes it even better than it was before. That Eden is not meant to be paradise. Per se, it's just for starting grounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's how God originally intended the earth to be, um, but of course, uh, because of the fall and the curse, it, it turned out not to be that way. Uh, when in um, in Revelation um, chapter twenty-two, I think it is, could be twenty-one, where he talks about the new Jerusalem descending onto the earth. Um, there's a couple of views on that. One view is that it's a literal city, and I happen to take that view because there's so much description. Of the, of the New Jerusalem in Revelation, that it's hard to believe God would give all these descriptions, um, but it's not a literal city. Um, but another legitimate view is that the New Jerusalem um, represents um, the glorified church, the body of Christ. But either way, you, either view you take, you still see heaven coming down um, and, and merging with earth. There's a continuity between um, earth and heaven that's going to reach its fruition um, in the last days when heaven and earth merge together. Mm-hmm. Or heaven descends down to earth, I guess, is a better way to put it. Yeah. And I think at this point, we need to kind of ask what heaven would be like. Because recently I finished reading Clay Jones's book about why does God allow evil. And something mm. he talked about, and I found it very convicting, is that we usually don't get excited about heaven. And if heaven was the way many churches seem to describe it, which seems consists of sitting on clouds being an angel yeah. and playing a harp all day, or dare I say, an eternal church service, and I'd say, yes, heaven would be a very boring place indeed. I, yes, and, and I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it struck me as like, I really don't seem to get excited when I think about heaven. So, I mean, can you give us some reason to get excited? What do you think heaven would be like? Well, if, if we think of Eden as a prototype of heaven, and Eden was how God originally intended the earth to be. Now, he knew it was going to fall, of course. Yeah. Um, but you had humans and animals uh, with each other. Um, we had the Garden of Eden, the garden part of Eden. We don't know how large Eden was, but we know that there was abundant food available. Uh, there was no sin. There was no natural disasters. Uh, none of these things occurred. 
Now, we, we, let me pause just a moment. We, we, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we like to know about heaven. So mm-hmm. again, just dealing with animals in the afterlife, there has to be a, a degree of speculation. Mm-hmm. But we can base that speculation on the, on the broad teachings of Scripture and, and the hints and, and suggestions it gives us throughout uh, Scripture. In the Old Testament, for example, there's a lot spoken about as they, um, uh, where he, he talks about the wolf and the child will be together and so forth, uh, gives a, a clear picture of the new heaven and earth in terms of of um, how we will get along with animals and how animals will get along with each other and how predator and prey will get along with each other. So we can assume if if, if it was like that in Eden, it's going to be even better than heaven. We know there's the tree of life and, and there's undoubtedly other trees. A lot of theologians think there's going to be a beautiful forest. Uh, it tells us there'll, there'll be no um, there'll be no sun. Uh, we're not sure where the light will come from. Maybe just come from the glory of God. It tells us there'll be no sea. Um, that's going to be disappointing to a lot of people. Uh, I'm not sure what that means either. Something people think that's a kind of a, a metaphor as well. Yeah, so we don't uh, know I all of these things. I think it's really a metaphor that the sea was usually uh, kind of linked with the idea of chaos and such. So it's saying right. there's going to be no right. chaos. Mm-hmm. There. there will be right. sea creatures, though. Yeah, yeah. I hope so because then I have a problem. If there's not, what about all the sea creatures and like dolphins, for example? Mm-hmm. Uh, where are they going to go? Yeah. <laughs> are they going to become you know, land animals? So, no, I, I agree with you. I think uh, for me to be logically consistent, I have to think there's going to be a, a literal oceans um, in the new heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. I, I have to take that position. Uh, it's philosophical, if not theological. I have to take that position. But anyway, I, I think the Bible gives enough suggestion that it's going to be absolutely incredible. And, uh, you know, Paul tells us we have no idea what God has in store for us. So there's going to be much more um, things about heaven that we can't even imagine in this life that's going to be available for us. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing, of course, will be that we'll be living with, with God, we'll dwell with us, we'll see Jesus face to face. There'll be no more death, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more pain and suffering. I, I don't understand how any non-Christian atheist would not be drawn uh, to that scenario. And why they wouldn't be willing to investigate this, just check it out and, uh, and see what could be awaiting for them in the, in the meaningless of life without having that viewpoint uh, that a Christian has. And, and for me, an important part of that is there's going to be animals there as well, wild and domesticated both, and our pets. Yeah, sadly, it could be the reason they don't look into this is because they've been to a few church services and heard messages that I've mm-hmm. heard that are pretty mm-hmm. boring about mm-hmm. eternity <laughs> and such. Right. I mean, some people are just getting so many facts wrong. I, I remember right. doing my grandmother's funeral. I was one of three ministers assigned to do your funeral. The first and only funeral I've ever done. So imagine having your first one be your grandmother's. Oh, and goodness. her church yeah. pastor came and spoke before I did. So I'm sitting back there and I'm hearing him speak. And he says, I want you to know right now she is experiencing the power of a resurrection. And I'm sitting back there I'm thinking, um, Pastor, I'm sorry, I'm looking. I'm pretty sure her corpse <laughs> is still down there. I don't think she's yeah, experiencing right. that yet. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Well, and, and it's unfortunate you mentioned how a lot of people's image of heaven is, is sitting in clouds and playing harps. Yeah. And um, it's sad that, that people have that image because it's just so far from reality. Uh, even the little bit we know about heaven from Scripture, that is just, I, I don't know anywhere it tells us we're going to be sitting, even hints that we're going to be sitting on clouds playing harps, yeah. or just going to be angelic beings that are floating around doing nothing, particularly, but praising God. And that's, of course, we will be doing. That's probably the most important thing we'll do. But there's going to be a lot more to heaven than that. 
I think it's very interesting also that the Bible doesn't give much description about heaven, because that's contrasted with something like, say, Islam, where mm-hmm. in Islam, right. you know, the usual description is that a man gets to go somewhere where he's got endless strength and there are multiple virgins, usually 70, mm-hmm. waiting right. for him. And when you hear that, you right. think, where Muhammad just took an earthly pleasure, which is excellent, of course, and he just amplified that for eternity, the only way he could think of to talk about eternity. And mm-hmm. the Bible is like there's this great divine restraint, as if to say, yeah, we, uh, we just can't really tell you what's coming. Right, right. Yeah, God just hasn't given us all the information we like to have, um, but he sure has given us enough to whet our appetites and, and to help us have some insight into, a, a pretty good insight into what I think anyway, what it's going to be like for us. Mm-hmm. And you also refer to C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis talks about these moments, I think they're called Zangzoots or something of that sort, where you have an experience, and Peter Crafts has talked about this, where you have this great thing happen, and at the same time, as great as this is, you also realize there's got to be something more at this point. But, you know, usually if you're desiring something and you don't have it, it causes you pain to an extent. I mean, if you're desiring food and you don't have it, you don't say, oh, it's so great to be hungry. Mm. Such If you're desiring Mm -hmm. a drink and you don't have it, then you think, oh, it's so great to be thirsty. It's painful. I mean, to me, the closest parallel I can think of, though, I mean, is if a missus says we're going to be having a very romantic evening this night, that desire to me is very good to think about. And Kraft says mm. that when you have this desire, it's, you know there's got to be something more, but you don't know what it is. But the desire itself is really enjoyable. I and mean, you would rather have this desire than most other things you have in this life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, C.S. Lewis, I think it was a mere Christianity. Um, he basically said that God will, has not given us any desire that's not going to be fulfilled. Right. In other words, we desire food because food's available. We desire love because we're people that need love. And um, we des- and he points out that we desire paradise, that we have this latent understanding that there is something better for us, waiting for us in the future. And that's a human desire. I mean, even uh, people who don't are Christians, they still have this desire for something better than, than this life. And if that's a natural desire that God has given us, then that desire is also going to be fulfilled. And um, we Christians know how it's going to be fulfilled because God has revealed that to us in Scripture. Mm. So, yes, that's a very good argument, I think. In fact, I wrote an article with the Christian Research Journal exploring that very same subject. Um, I think it was a couple of years ago. And, um, and I think that's a, a very good case can be made that, that we have this latent oh, kind of a, a, a memory, if I could put it that way, mm. of Eden that is grained in us, and this is pointing to paradise. We crave subconsciously uh, to return to that again. Alistair McGrath, are you familiar with him? Oh, yeah. A British theologian. Uh-huh. Yeah, and he's he's written a, about this in several of his books, and uh, he talks about, in particular, he talks about that nature um, is a pointer, or like a preview, like the trailer of a movie is, is a term that I have used, 
um, to, to show us what it just might be like in heaven. It's a pointer to heaven. It's not the full feature. Um, it, it, it's not the blossoming rose. It's, it's just the bud, but it still gives us enough information uh, to make us want to crave that and recognize there's going to be something there waiting for us, assuming you're one of God's people saved by Christ. Yeah, I we've got a neighbor we're talking a lot about because she's asking a whole lot of questions about Christianity to us now and such. And I said, I mm. want you to think of nature as it was, as if God is engaging in spiritual foreplay with us. He's flirting with mm. us. He's giving a little bit of a clue and saying, this is what's right. coming. This is a little hint of what, what great greater joy you're going to have and such. And I, I think see, I think Peter Christ says the same kind of thing in his yeah. book, uh, Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Longing, which I, I tell people, if you can read this book, it is really one of the most life-transforming and best books you will ever read. Mm. Never, did, did you say Peter Kreef? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He he wrote a book, um, Everything You Want to Know About Heaven as well. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I quote that, in fact, in my book, and he makes a very clear statement that pets will be in heaven. Yeah. He, he specifies pets. When he says, will my cat be in heaven? Why not? And then he gives, you know, in his, his little dialogue that he does. So, yes. Yeah, I think the book is everything you ever want to know about heaven, but never dreamed of asking right. what you're talking yes, about. Right, yes, that's what it is. Right, yeah. yeah. And uh, Alistair McGrath has written two or three books relevant to that as well about heaven and that are very, very good. And, and as, as I said, he emphasizes a lot of nature being a preview of what we can expect in heaven in terms of what the, the, the environment will be like in heaven, which and I really appreciated his work. Yeah, yeah. I found it also interesting, another passage that you brought up, and I wouldn't have considered it in this light, but the fact that someone like Richard Balkum also considers it in this light really made me think, and that's with uh, Jesus and the wild beast yes. in mm-hmm. Mark 1. I mean, we, we read over right. that in the temptation narratives, and we don't think a thing about it, but you and Balkum think where well, we should think about it. Yeah, and that's the first place. That's the first time I've ever heard that before was from his book, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and I never realized. And and of course, just read it at, at face value didn't really tell us much. But what he did is he investigated that in terms of Jewish tradition and how the the, the culture at Jesus' time would have recognized what was said there, and um, that it has clear messianic uh, message for us. And the fact that Jesus walked with the animals, there's no implication there that there's any hostility there, anything like that. It's more of a, more like a friendship, that he walked with the animals. And uh, again, to make sense of it, he, he, as he did, and I, and I, Quinn, I quoted him quite a bit to explain this, is um, he did a very good job explaining why that was messianic um, in terms of, of animals, um, potentially in the, in the afterlife as well, in the millennial kingdom, or however you, the position you take on that. So... You also have something in there about how there could be otherworldly creatures. There, and you look to the uh, the creatures that stand around the throne in Book of Revelation, mm-hmm. such. But I can't but wonder. I mean, I've read a lot of fantasy literature in my time, and that could mean that God would have creatures specifically there that we never see in this world, except maybe in fantasy, like maybe griffins or hippogriffs or unicorns or things like that. I mean, is this <laughs> right. a possibility? 
Well, I think I think um, the only conclusion we could draw from Scripture is the animals that are on this earth are going to be the same kind of animals that are in heaven. You know, as I make a little wit in the book where I said when Jesus returns, he's going to be on a horse. He's not going to be on a on a unicorn. Um, and so I think that the, the animals that are mentioned in heaven, like, like eagles, for example, and horses and so forth, um, we can assume that we'll have this, the, the earthbound animals um, that lived on this earth. And uh, so whatever animals are in heaven, I think, are going to be um, animals on this earth. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean there couldn't be otherworldly creatures. Um, the verse that you're talking about in Revelation, I think it's five, where the, the four living creatures, there are different interpretations of that. Uh, and Bachman, of course, takes a position that they, they are literally animals, and, um, and they represent different kinds of animals here on Earth. Um, and, and Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven, which in my view is the best book that have been written on heaven, the ones that I've read anyway, mm-hmm. and um, he takes a very strong stance that these, uh, that these um, four living creatures are literal animals. In fact, in, in, the, the, in the Greek, the word that is used there, um, in fact, in the King James Version, they use beasts. And if I remember correctly, and the word that is, is used there is zone. In the Greek, it's when we get the word zoo. Mm-hmm. So, again, that's an implication that these are, are literal animals. Now, that's not the only interpretation. Some of them think they're symbolic of, of the attributes of God. Some think they are, they're angelic beings and so forth. So we can't, we can't be dogmatic about that. Yeah. But, again, it's, it's a, a, um, at least a possibility and further support of animals in the afterlife. I like to remind everyone at this point that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. And what we do here, friends, I, I gotta say, it is listener supported. Mm-hmm. Ali and I go through a whole lot of financial struggles here and such. And one thing I still keep trying to do faithfully is do the podcast, do the reading, do the research and such. And I, I could really use your support. <laughs> So if you want to take part in that support, what I would ask you to do is go to our website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. And once you're there, you'll see on the side a link that says, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Something of that sort. And there's a link hidden in there. And when you click on it, you go to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. As I said earlier, those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you go and you make your donation, and it is tax deductible. And then you get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike or Debbie themselves. And, and I mean, it's important you have to get in touch with us, or else we have no way of knowing. And you say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure that we do get your tax deductible donation. And you can also. Beyond that, you can go and buy ebooks that we have on Amazon. And those include Defining Inerrancy, uh, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed as a Christian, or Groundless, or other books like that. And guys, something else you can do 
is uh, you can go to the jewelry store that we actually have. Yes, we have a friend who, of a ministry who sells jewelry, and she's offered to help us out. So, guys, if you want to get something really special at late in your life, because I'm not sure if you've noticed it yet, but women tend to like jewelry. And my, my own wife, uh, she's allergic to knickers. There's not much she can wear, and what she does wear, she doesn't wear it for long, but she likes wearing it when she can. So, you go there, you make a purchase. If you need some help, you get in touch with me, and I'll get you in touch with the lady in charge. And whatever you purchase... Just getting some of that lady in your life, whatever it is, 25% of it will go to the Ministry of Deeper Waters. So, guys, the way I see it, you can go and you can buy something that can make up for that big screw-up that you just recently done with a woman in your life. <laughs> or you can go and buy something to serve as insurance for that big screw-up that I know you're going to make soon with that woman in your life. Don't tell me you're not going to. I know you will. I will as well. So, as I mean... You get to help out a great ministry, and you get to get something for the ladies in your life. Why wouldn't you do that? And on top of that, if you can't do that, please get in touch with me. Let me know if you like the show. Let me know what changes you'd like to see, or maybe some guests you'd like to recommend. And uh, please also uh, consider going on iTunes and leaving a positive review for the Deeper Waters podcast. i really like to see it. Um, Dan, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Well, I'll be honest with you, Nick, after after learning, meeting you and uh, learning about your um, ministry, I recommend people donate to you. Mm. That'd be my first choice uh, right now. Um, other than that, we talked about the Cornwall um, uh, Alliance, and that would be another one that I would recommend uh, that people could no- donate to as well. I, I could, but it's not but... like you could really use a donation, and I, and I hope you get a good response from this podcast. I, I appreciate it. I, I could also encourage people to go to the Cornwall Alliance as where well. I have a lot of respect for E. Calvin Bisoner. Now, uh, let's get back to your book, then. Now, something you also mm-hmm. do say is that there aren't any teddy bears in heaven. I mean, what do you mean by that? Well, I, what I mean by that is animals are going to still be animals in heaven. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I take a little personal note on that as well. Uh, you know, I've been a wildlife watcher. In fact, I even wrote a book on how to find wildlife without frightening them away back in, oh, it's been probably close to 10 years ago now, about seven or eight years ago. And I've always been an advocate of animals and uh, I love wildlife. It's been a lot, of, a lot of my life has been out marching around and exploring wilderness areas and doing photography and so forth. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I just really um, love animals. And so... Um, you know what? I take to deal with this, but I think I lost my train of thought. Where was, what was your question again? That, my mind just started wandering. Teddy bears in heaven. Oh, teddy bears. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. That happens every once in a while. You to be my age. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, yeah, my point on that is that because I have such a great love for wildlife and, and have find so much joy um, unexpectedly coming upon animals in the wilds, uh, my personal hope is is in heaven we won't just be you know teddy bears and hugging and, and and petting and all that that there's animals will still be wild and I think that how how it's going to be because wild animals are wild animals and there's still going to be wild animals in heaven there's not going to be predators there's 
there's not going to be, um, you know, conflict between humans and animals. We're, we're going to live in, in a harmonious environment. Um, but I'm still hoping that um, animals will still be wild animals in a, in a uh, restored sense where they're not dangerous and that we can still have the, the joy of walking through uh, wild habitats and, and, and enjoying seeing animals in their native habitats, even in heaven. And I guess my point is that I, I don't think it's all, all going to be teddy bears and cuddling and, and things like that in heaven uh, with animals. I think they're still going to be just animals, and they're going to be um, wild but not dangerous. Now, there there will be some of that, though, I'm sure. I mean, I, I, I think so. my, my wife would still enjoy getting to snuggle with a cat in eternity, and this time he won't be running away many of the times when she wants to. <laughs> No, and of course, pets are still going to be pets too, and they're going to be just as bonded to us as they are. Now, and, and in the book, I also, um, when I close, I believe it's when I close this section out that we're just talking about, um, I also point out that that I'm hoping that I could, I think I say I lounge in the shadow of grizzly bears and scratch behind the ears of lions. Mm. Well, there's going to be some of that, but I, I, and I, and I believe that as well. I, again, animals are not going to be dangerous to us. They're not going to be afraid of us, and we're not going to be danger to them or afraid of them. So there's going to be a, a different relationship than there is now, and especially in terms of wild animals. Um, but I'm still hoping I could have the joy of going out and, and finding them in the wild as well. And they wouldn't run away like they often do nowadays. You know, it, it amazes me when we're talking about this kind of topic. And so much of it, people would say it doesn't really relate to us. It doesn't really relate to apologetics and such. They might be timid to think that, but and we're talking instead about eternity and the problem of evil and such, this all mm -hmm. relates. Absolutely. And in fact, this is the reason that, that C.S. Lewis, Lewis brought this up in his book, The Problem of Pain, mm -hmm. is because there is an issue in terms of, of um, uh, the fate of animals and how inhumane they're treated. And that's why he, he wrote that chapter on it um, <clears throat> as well. So um, I think that's an important subject. Now, in terms of apologetics, that's been my ministry for 30 plus years is mm -hmm. Christian apologetics. And um, everything I write has, a, to some degree, an apologetic slant, and including the blogs that I write on a weekly basis. And I am a firm believer that, that well, we know there's some 40 million households in the United States that, with dogs alone. Yeah. And you know a lot of those households are non-Christians, non and they have the same wondering about their animals as we do. Mm -hmm. And so from an apologetic standpoint, uh, it's my hope that my book will be an opportunity for Christians um, to purchase the book and give it to non-Christian animal lovers and pet owners and so forth as a way to gently introduce them um, to the reality of God, the reality of Jesus Christ, the wonders of heaven as an apologetic point of contact or, or in, in conversations, used as a conversational starting point. And so uh, that's one of the reasons I wrote this book is, is to be an instrument that we can use Christians as an apologetic tool and as an evangelistic tool as well. Mm-hmm. So let's suppose on an applicational level that you came into a house and you found out that the people there had just had a pet recently die, which is a tragedy, of course. What do you say to them? Right. Well, I say that I haven't. That has not happened to me. Um, but what I've had a number of things on on Facebook comments and so forth from my blogs. And um, in fact, I'm a member of, uh, oh, I guess there's about eight or nine animal groups. And of course, there's, they're not Christian animal groups or non-Christian animal groups. And um, I take the opportunity when I can, when it's appropriate, 
and uh, and a lot of these are animal grief groups or people that have lost a pet. And I will engage in those, and um, and I will tell them, you know, there, there, we, you have hope. There is hope that you'll see your animals again. And, of course, I reference my book because I want them. And it's not just for people to buy my book. I really genuinely want to help these people discover who Jesus Christ is. That's what it's all about. Everything we do in apologetics, that's what it's all about. And this is an avenue that I hope that I've reached out to people in that particular format um, by encouraging them and telling them there is hope. And, 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 I've, and I, I give a, a very compelling reason why there is hope. And if they buy my book and read it, I'm hoping they will get a chance to meet Jesus Christ and it can make a difference in their life. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's always my goal on apologetics. Same thing in my, um, my book, Should Christians Be Environmentalists? I wrote it also. In fact, the very last part of that book is specifically written to non-Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I hope it will be used also as an evangelistic and apologetic tool. Does this say anything about how we should be caring for our animals today? Well, if you read the Bible, the Bible is very clear, especially in the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't speak a whole lot to this, but the Old Testament has very clear instructions. Uh, Proverbs says, uh, you know, we should we should take care of our beasts. We should we should take care of our animals. There are different places in the Bible that speaks to that. Uh, we know the Israelites were given certain prohibitions. For, for example, if they come up on a bird in the wild, um, they can take the egg. They don't kill the mother. Um, they're, they're supposed to help an enemy's animal if it falls in a pit. Um, they are told on the, on the, every seven years when they have the, um, oh gosh, uh, one of the sabbatical years, I forgot now what the term is in the Old Testament, um, that they're, they don't plant anything. They live off of, of what was planted previously. And they're to leave, uh, leave it for the poor and the wild animals, it says. So not only the poor people come in and glean from those fields, but the wild animals have access to it as well. And so there's numerous examples in the Old Testament of, of God showing a very direct concern and instructed the Israelites for the care and treatment and management of both wild and domesticated animals. We have to jump back to something you say earlier in the book, though. I mean, you're talking about how the Old Testament, you're talking about very good care of animals and such, but... The Old Testament contains animal sacrifices as well, and they're commanded to be done. Right. Yeah. Well, of course, there isn't a better way, we know, for um, to give a very vivid picture of the sacrifice that's involved um, for our salvation. Of course, as Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, it wasn't for all sacrifice. And so this was just a, a preview of, of the coming of Christ. It's a picture of the sacrifice of spilled blood for the coming of Christ. Um, so that's, of course, the most important understanding for us to recognize in terms of Old Testament sacrifices. We need to know also that the food wasn't wasted. They just sacrificed an animal, that was the end of it, burned it up, and that was it. Uh, that, uh, the, the sacrificed animals also was food for the priests. And, um, and they, they butchered them, not unlike how we butcher animals today. It was very humane, very quick. Uh, it wasn't a slow, torturous way. And so even though that is offensive to some of us, mm-hmm. um, we don't understand that. Um, you have to look at it theologically, and you have to have to look at that as a pointer to Christ. You have to look at it in terms of how that actually took place in the sacrificial system. Uh, many think that when Jesus chased the animal, the, uh, the money changers out of the, the temple, um, that that was actually the beginning of, that was his statement of the end of the sacrificial system. We know that happened anyway when he was resurrected. Um, in terms of Christians were concerned and uh, non-Jews, um, but that I think is a good picture of um, his rejection of the sacrificial system. You also can be interpreted that way. You also say this helps address the problem of evil, some because there are people who will ask, "Well, what about animal suffering and such? Isn't this a problem?" 
Yeah, that's. I think that is one of the arguments for the resurrection of animals, and uh, that God will recompense um, animals, especially beasts of burden, as John Wesley put it, will recompense animals that have suffered almost their entire life under human dominion, uh, not just dominion, but human. I talk mostly about farm animals and so forth, animals we eat and so forth, um, because of the curse and the suffering that they've experienced that one of the justification, one of the arguments of the resurrection of animals, it, it, it almost necessarily follows that God would, would uh, restore them and resurrect them because of the suffering they did for no fault of their own, but because of human sin and the fall, these animals have suffered, and God is going to recompense that for them um, in the future. And that's a very strong argument. I quote some people that take that position as well um, in my book as an argument for animal immortality. And you if also you think about it, that's, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Please. Well, I'm just going to say uh, that to me that makes perfect sense, um, and it seems to be consistent with God's great love and his justice, uh, not only for humans, but for, uh, for creation as well. You also say that this is another illustration about the importance of resurrection in a Christian system. The best explanation of what happens is, in fact, resurrection, but it's not just limited to humans now. Mm-hmm. Could you expound on that yeah. some? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, Nick. I wasn't sure. I'm a little heavy. I know you got your allergies going on. I had a little trouble understanding your question. You're also talking about it, how uh, the explanation for how animals get there is resurrection. And this, I think, helps affirm the biblical notion about the importance of resurrection. Except this time, it's not just humans that are being resurrected. I mean, right. Could you explain okay. gotcha. how resurrection fits in here? Yeah, well, uh, probably the best text for that, besides the numerous texts that make allusion to animals in heaven, is uh, Romans chapter eight, verses uh, thirteen to twenty or nineteen to twenty-three, uh, where Paul says that all of creation is waiting for the redemption of men. Well, of course, animals are part of creation, redemption of the human race, God's people in particular, of course, and um, and that because they are part of that redemption, and because animals have souls, we can assume if humans are resurrected, soul-bearing humans are resurrected into physical bodies, animals that are going to join the redemption of the, of the human race, uh, which are also soul-bearing creatures, there's no reason not to assume that they too wouldn't be blessed with the resurrected bodies as well. And if you think about it, there's really only three options for animals. We know there's going to be animals in heaven. The Bible, Bible makes that very clear, Old and New Testament both. But if you think about it, there's really only, only three options. Um, either God can create entirely different kinds of animals for heaven, um, but that really doesn't have any biblical precedence for that because the animals mentioned in heaven um, are the same animals we see on earth. And so it's not likely that God is going to create an entirely different species of animals. Um, the other alternative, he's going, to, he's going to create the same kinds of animals on earth um, that um, in heaven, I mean, that now live on earth, but they're not the same ones that live on earth and died. But again, that doesn't make sense either. Uh, God saved the animals coming out of the ark um, to repopulate the earth. Uh, why would he not do the same thing with the animals to, to populate heaven? Yeah. Um, it, it just doesn't follow suit that he would, and there's other reasons we could argue that, but that's, I think that's a, a pretty good one. Um, there'd be no logical reason why he would not resurrect these soul-bearing animals on earth now, why he wouldn't resurrect them and just create the same animals for heaven down the road, um, you know, create them from scratch. It just, that just doesn't make sense. So the third option is a resurrected, and that's the most logical and has the best biblical support. Yeah. You know, that, that's getting me to wonder now, because we are told that there will be no giving or taking in marriage, of marriage in heaven, at least for us. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, we we won't be reproducing in the heaven, but we do it here, but not there. What about animals? Mm-hmm. Will they be reproducing I, there, or what? No, I think it'll be the same. Uh, again, if their animals are redeemed alongside the human race, um, I think, and their sobering animals uh, will be in heaven. I think we'd assume the same thing will happen for them. Um, will be the same case for the animals as it is for people, and there won't be reproduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'd be no reason to. And uh, again, this is speculation. Someone could argue, well, I don't believe that. I think animals are going to have babies in heaven. Maybe they will. Um, I don't know, but I don't think you can make a case for that scripturally. Mm-hmm. And logically, I just don't think it flies. Yeah, and I take it you're very skeptical that we'd actually be, you know, eating animals in heaven. No, there'll be no death in heaven, so you couldn't eat live animals. <laughs> You'd mm-hmm. have to kill them to eat them. And so, uh, no, there'll, there'll be no, uh, just like in Eden, there'll be no uh, eating of meat in, in heaven. And now, some people could say, well, you know, this sounds like it's a whole new kind of interpretation, and this is... Probably taking, you know, just because we don't want to be apart from animals, so now we can all feel better about ourselves and such. But really, you're not the first one to take this stance now, are you? No, I'm not. I'm not. There's been other books written on, um, of course, in animals in the afterlife, in particular pets. I, I don't know if anyone has written a book about wildlife in the afterlife like yeah. I did, but then I don't know all of the books that have been written over the decades yeah. and probably the last century, in fact. Um, but the again, and I haven't read many of those books. I've checked them out. I've read the reviews. I've read their their descriptions and so forth. I even read a couple of them on my own. And um, they're not systematically developed like mine. And uh, and I think that's probably the, the major difference in my book and other books is, you know, I'm a trained apologist. I have a degree in theology and I'm very mm-hmm. systematic and careful how I develop this whole um, thesis. Now, the, the book isn't, I, I want to make sure your readers, underst- your listeners understand, uh, the book is written for a general audience. Uh, it's right. scholarly enough that people that want a higher level of understanding can appreciate that, but the book is written for a general audience, and I give numerous illustrations and anecdotes and personal experiences. I even quote some Christian novelists. I even quote Dean Koontz, who, by the way, is a Christian as well, who writes all of these suspense mm-hmm. stories. And um, and so I, I use lots of illustrations um, uh, as as well to, to to supplement the book, to make it interesting and fun to read. And I think the book is very fun to read according to the reviews that I've gotten, and people have enjoyed it that way as well. Yeah, it, it is very easy to read. I'll give you, I mean, when I got done reading it, I gave it to my wife and said, here, you can read this, and she hasn't got to it yet, but I, I think she will enjoy it when she does, and I wouldn't give her that book unless I thought it was something easy to read, because in our family, I'm the one who's the major scholarly one and such, and if I get her something, I want to say, this is a book that's on your level. It's not too deep. It's not going to use too many big words and such. You can get this mm. one. Right. And if I do use big words, words, I try to define them. <laughs> mm. People know what I'm saying. Sometimes you have to use a big word, uh, but I always try to define the words that I do use. There's not very many like that. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife um, was somewhat of a skeptic about animals in the afterlife herself, and she's an intelligent woman. She has a degree in theology herself, mm-hmm. but she was um, a little skeptical about that. But when she read my book, she's convinced she'll see her pets in heaven, our, our pets in heaven again. Yeah. So, I, I think it's I've had a number of other. I'm sorry. No, no go just, ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, if people went to Amazon and read my reviews, they'd see a number of people expressing basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they just really didn't think about it much, or they, they were skeptics. But after reading the book, they became convinced. Yeah, I mean, I've said the 
same kind of thing here. I mean, I, I read it for, you know, there's probably got to be a whole lot of speculation and such. You know, the Bible doesn't really say much about this. It's it's a good idea, and I hope you're right, but I'm just not sure how the case can be argued. Then, like I said, I started going through it, and wait, wait, there is a whole lot here that he is getting into, and it is really good stuff. It really is engaging with the text. It's engaging with the evidence that we have. I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, this also well, I, does... Go ahead. No, I just I had a lot of fun writing the book, too. Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't particularly a skeptic in the sense that I, just like you mentioned earlier, I hoped this would be the case. and uh, But I didn't really have any basis to believe it until I started researching this book. And so it, it actually was an encouragement to me as a writer, as it was to a lot of the readers who read it as well. Yeah. Now, you also talked about how people in the past did say this. This, in fact, even goes... I'm sure me and my Protestant listeners, like myself, where I appreciate this fact. This goes back to the Reformers. Luther and Calvin both had something to say about this, didn't they? Right. Luther and Calvin both made references to animals in the afterlife or the animals living on in the next life. Uh, John Wesley is another one, which I'd mentioned in our, in our discussion as well. I think he's about the 17th, or 18th, 17th century, I believe. And, um, yeah, and I kind of went down up to modern um, theologians as well, like Bachman and, and Peter Kreef. Uh, Hank Hanegraaff of the Christian Research Institute mm. and his book, Afterlife, um, he also um, endorsed this. Now, a lot of them don't say dog, they're not dogmatic about it, just like I'm not, um, but they basically yeah. express a, a very great possibility of it. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit then also about the idea of animals and humans talking in heaven. I mean, <laughs> as soon as this comes up, it's kind of hard to not think about the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> And it does right. seem like it, it's kind of a, a idea of paradise of sort that we will be able to communicate with the animals. Right. Yeah, and you might be able to argue, and again, that, as I said earlier, that particular chapter, the last chapter of the book, is very very much speculation. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of it is kind of assumptions, I guess you could say, yeah. on my part. But as I did throughout the entire book, I try to do that chapter systematically as well and uh, give reasons why I think there's a possibility of this to happen. And I think one of the most interesting ones is animal archetypes. What I mean by that is if you go back and study uh, mythology, you're going to find that the idea of talking animals is ancient. In fact, animistic religions believe that animals talk. That they're the most common religion. They are the religion, in fact, of primitive um, preliterary societies. And um, they believe that animals could talk as well. They, they believe they didn't talk very much, but they still believed them. Like mm-hmm. the American Indians, for example, is an example of that. And so as you go out through the history of religion, you find that that's not uncommon. Um, and I use the illustration of uh, the flood. Uh, you know, the, a lot of the, the ancient cultures believed in a worldwide flood. They didn't have the pure understanding of it that we have through Scripture. But in their culture, in their mythologies, they recognize uh, the idea of a flood. And uh, very similar to the flood of Noah, where animals are saved and so forth. And um, so you take all of these, uh, this, arch, this archetype idea, and you bring it up more to modern times. You get, you get the, the Potter books and the C.S. Lewis Narnia that you yeah. mentioned. Um, you get into the, the cartoons um, today, where you have animals talking and so forth with each other. I think that lends a little bit of, at least some credence to the part, to the fact that this may be ingrained in our subconsciousness that could point back to Eden, when animals, maybe they did actually communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's, that's one of the arguments I use as a possibility. 
uh, to establish that that may be the case. I don't know, and I'm very careful to say that, but the way the position I take is, why not? Yeah, and I, I can't but think as someone who's grown up in the gaming industry all my life and such, that one of the themes you can see in many games, for instance, is the idea of having a party going out and having animars be part of your team that humans commanding animars go out and not just fight on their behalf, but fight together side by side. And I even mm-hmm. I even get a listing of free ebooks and such for sale. And when I saw this week, for instance, was animals that assisted human beings in World War One, for instance. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I kind of think it comes to mind. I think maybe animals and humans then will be exploring the new creation side by side that you might have animals doing things that humans still by nature might not be able to do to help us yeah. fulfill our work in the new creation. Well that's that's very interesting. That's a wonderful thought. I endorse that. Mm. <laughs> it may be. Again I would use the phrase why not? Yeah. And I, I think that's a, a bit of a surprise to some people when I mentioned some about doing work in the new creation, and say, well, mm. yes, we will be. Heaven will be a sure. place where work takes place, and if we use animals in our work here, why not think we won't do the same thing there? Good possibility. I mean, Adam tended the garden. We know he worked in Eden, Adam and Eve, mm. and uh, it would be pretty boring if we didn't do anything but sit around all day long mm-hmm. in heaven, to use your phrase. Yeah. So I think that, um, yeah, I, I think there'll be work. I think there'll be joy. Uh, it, it, but it's going to be a pleasure. Nobody's going to feel yeah. their job as a drudgery. They're going to love it, and they're going to want to do it, and it's going to honor God. So I guess what we can say here, and this point also, is we've talked so much about this, but maybe we need to bounce back to one of your earliest writings and ask, in light of all this, should Christians be environmentalists? You know, I think the Bible makes it very clear that we have, that God has mandated the human race, beginning with Adam, um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, he has mandated the human race to be his stewards or his caretakers over nature. Um, he didn't give us the, the, the permission to use and abuse animals any right. way we want to do, just like he didn't give us the permission to spoil nature any way we want to do. We have a responsibility to care for it. And so, yeah, I, I think that if, if, if you do a, a good exegesis of Scripture and study those portions of Scripture that relates to our responsibility as, as stewards, I think it, you'll come away convinced that we do have that, that responsibility before God. And again, I wrote a book on that. It's called Why Christians Should Be Environmentalists. And I actually give a doctrine of ecology in the book um, that I kind of summarize my, my take in on all of this. And, um, and so, yeah, I, w- I very much endorse Christian environmentalism. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I was environmentalist before as a Christian, so now I see a little bit differently than I did back then. Um, because we do have responsibility not just for nature and for mankind, but we have responsibility for God. Yeah, and I think it can be fully consistent to say you don't have a problem with, say, eating animal meat and such, while at no. the same time saying you fully oppose the abuse of animals. Absolutely. I mean, right. Right, and I and I very much oppose the misuse of animal and animal husbandry. I'm a strong proponent of of raising animals in a way that they don't suffer, and um and but but yet I endorse because God gave us permission to eat meat in um in Genesis chapter nine, and so I I, I endorse that we're free to do that. Um, I I just like to see animals treated humanely. 
you know, I mean, I know, for instance, we talk about Shark Week. My wife has a huge problem that there are so many people out there who were capture sharks, some of them who are now endangered, cut off their yeah, fins, the and then use right. them to make soup. And the sharks can't survive without their fins in the yeah. wild like yeah. that. No, I think I think that's a, a total misuse of our responsibility as God's stewards. Um, I think that's using animals without even caring one iota about the animal themselves. And I just can't see God who loves the sharks just like he loves animals endorsing that kind of behavior. Yeah. Well, I think one of the questions we can ask at this point is, how can we be the people who love the creation without worshiping it? I mean, what should we be doing that's different from, say, the New Age community and such? Well, we don't we don't elevate creation above humankind. In other words, if it comes down to who do we we, we feed, feed the starving people um, in parts of the third world countries, or we protect the environment and just let them go hungry, mm-hmm. humankind always comes first. But right. it's not an either or. It's not a faulty dilemma. Uh, we can both do both. We can take care of the environment. We can also provide for human needs as well. And I think uh, it, it, so often when we when we read things in the more radical environmentalists, that's what it seems to be. We either sacrifice humans or we sacrifice animals. It doesn't need to be that way. Uh, we can live together in harmony, and we may not be able to have animals that the, the natural habitats they once had. There's going to be some compromising there, yeah. but we don't have to totally abuse them and compromise them. So. Yeah, I mean, for all we know, we could, in fact, be exploring Van Mars and whole other worlds. I mean, I've thought, for instance, that when you study space, for instance, that Jupiter, I think it's Europa, its moon, has a whole ocean underneath it. And I thought, Ooh. couldn't it be that maybe one day in the new creation, we'll be able to go and explore that ocean? I mean, maybe we'll be able to go from planet to planet somehow or something like that. I hope so. Yeah, I've thought the very same thing, and uh, maybe one of the blessings we're going to have in our resurrected body is, well, obviously we're going to be able to do things. Jesus in his resurrected body did things that he didn't do in his, yeah. his earthly body, and so I, I think we can make a good case there's things we're going to be able to do and, uh, and travel, perhaps, interstellarly, perhaps, um, because we're just blessed that way with our new body. Who knows? Uh, the, the creation, all of creation, Paul tells us, is going to be redeemed. It's not just going to be planet Earth. And so, who knows? Uh, it's exciting to think about and exciting to anticipate. And what would you say then to the Christian who doesn't seem to have this excitement? Can you think of anything specifically with animals that you would use to to kind of increase the excitement in this Christian? Well, that's what I'm hoping that my book will do. And um, I've done a workshop on this, uh, in fact, even before the book came out. And um, where I've taught this same thing, and, and I just hope that the book and, um, and, and, and like-minded books would um, be an encouragement to Christians and non-Christians both uh, to, to have greater regard for their animals, uh, recognize them as living creatures that God created and finds joy in, and it, environmentally speaking, taking care of them um, and loving them as we can do with our pets. I also do have a hope that others where take your work and expound on it, maybe some even critique it in such cause. I mean, by all sure. means, this should be the start of a bigger conversation and not the final word. No one should ever really have the entire final word except for scripture itself. Right, absolutely. Right, I totally agree with that. That'd be wonderful. Mm-hmm. No more will be done in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any further work you're doing in this area right now that our 
listeners can look forward to? Well, not not specifically with terms of animals in the afterlife. I'm actually writing a book right now, and I'm the, and in fact, I'm blogging it, uh, portions of it anyway, as I go along, um, that is provisionally titled um, Encountering God in the Wilderness, A Spiritual Journey of Discovery. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help people to understand that that not only does God reveal that he exists through his creation, as, as uh, Romans chapter 1 teaches us, but he also reveals certain characteristics and I think as we get to know nature better, we can actually see some symbols and, um, and pictures of some of God's promises to the human race um, through nature. A classic mm-hmm. example of that is, um, for example, the, the birth of new flowers in the spring is a picture of the resurrection. And, um, but, but as I've studied this, and actually I've been working on this book for over 15 years, mm. uh, but just, and now I'm trying to finish it on and off over 15 years. I've written other books in between. But that's kind of my focus right now. And if readers, um, listeners are interested, they can follow my blog by going to my website. Is it okay to give that? Well, I'm getting ready to that point, so let's hold off for a little bit. Okay, I'd like to sure. let people know, and as we're starting to wrap things up, the book is Where Dogs Chase Cats in Heaven. And right now on Amazon, as of the time of this recording, the paperback is $9.95. The Kindle is $8.75. So now... Then, if people want to know more, if they're curious, do you have a blog, an email, a website, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yes, I do. My my website is is www.danstory at earthlink.net. Mm-hmm. Pretty simple to remember, www.danstoryearthlink.net. And uh, they can go to my website, and uh, the, the homepage, in fact, has the cover of the book as well as a brief description, and they can click on description down below and take them right to a kind of a, pre- a review of the book, the basic ingredients of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they can click on blog, and that will take them to uh, my blog. And um, I've, I'm on the um, – I've, I've already um, posted the first five in this new series on God in the Wilderness – but that's easy to catch up. They're, they're generally not only about 600 words. They're not real long. Mm-hmm. And um, and they can follow on the blog and get an idea of what I'm working on now. Do you have any final words you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience? Well, I just hope that um, even those who choose not to, to buy the book, I just hope that while we've discussed uh, you and I back and forth, would be encouraged them um, for pet owners in particular, that that they do have a good opportunity to see their pets again in heaven if they're mm-hmm. believers. Uh, this doesn't this doesn't go for people who are not Christians. We have no guarantee of anything for them, um, except they won't ever they won't live with God in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do hope they will use this both for their own encouragement and also as an as an outreach, a conversation starter uh, with non Christians as well. Uh, that's the reason I write my books is is not just to edify Christians, but also as a, as a tool for evangelism for non-Christians as well. Well, Dan, it's been a great discussion. I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Oh, I, I appreciate the opportunity, Nick, and I've had a lot of fun, and I really appreciate your ministry. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Gerard Verschuren on talking about his book, Aquinas and Modern Science. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>